The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. Beer in Copenhagen, Denmark. Beer in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Even beer in Rio de Janeiro. It's all about beer this week on the podcast. We even visit a beer can museum. The beer can museum, which is really cool to check out. (laughs) When you say Houston and a beer can museum, the image that pops into my mind is some guy's garage with all the Lone Stars that he's drunk in the past 40 years. I'm sure it's not that. Tell me what the beer can museum is like. It's actually pretty accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Everybody, welcome to the winemakers. I'm John Myers with a whole bunch of really cool folks today. Hi, Isabel. How are you, Sam, Brian, Dan, Mari- Marioni? Dan, I haven't met you. And Jack, what a pleasure. Yeah. Addy. Mucho gusto. Thanks. And Bart's, Bart's down there. Where's Bart? I see Bart on here, but he's in Santa Rosa I'm, or on the road. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Sam. I just. I just drove by Magnolia Wine Company um, and um, getting ready to go into the winery now. See, like it's almost like we planned that. Like we had done so much pre-production work that we made it so that Bart was driving by the wine facility that we're talking about as we started right. to introduce the show. We are <laughs> we are so professional. <laughs> yeah, hey, this job. <laughs> hey, Bart, honk the horn. Beep beep. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go right by. Hey, wave a jack out the window. Yeah, I was afraid of the reverb. Reverb. Right. Fair enough. Uh, well, so we have we have Jack Spore, Isabel Gossier, friend of the program. Is, is this your like maybe third or fourth appearance on the podcast? Fourth. Yeah, fifth? I think. I, fifth. Uh, and, no, I think and, just third. And Dan Marion, you're not in the winery though, Dan. You look like you're in a garage turned office, or either that or heavy metal den. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, definitely. This is like the gym, you know, recording studio, art studio, carving studio, beat laboratory. Where the magic happens. (laughs) All the above. Very important for winemaking to have a facility where you can do this random crap. All right. Well, it's, um, I guess since I'm quasi the organizer and planner of this one we'll sort of introduce and talk about what we're talking about um the where bart was driving a street east um across from our you know friend of the program bedrocks winery and what used to be inkadu is now is the newest custom crush in sonoma and jack why don't you talk a little bit about magnolia and and what's going on there and what's what's happening before we dig into the brands so Magnolia Wine Services is, as you said, Sonoma's newest custom crush facility. Uh, we do about 100, 150 tons, ideally. Um, you know, we take all lot sizes, so small winemakers, medium-sized winemakers, um, trying to move towards a natural wine focus where there's a real emphasis on co- collaboration between winemakers. So 
you know, part of what's so fun about this interview right now is, you know, both Isabel and Sam are making wine here as well as Dan. Um, so, and then, you know, a host of other really cool people of some very diverse backgrounds. So it's been uh, a really fun ride this first year. And I have a lot of high hopes for the future. Fun ride. You know, as y'all it's a hard harvest, but uh, I think, you know, even in the middle of those smoky apocalyptic days, I was still just having a blast making wine with a lot of my friends. So um, I'm excited to see what else we can pull out of this facility. I love the, it's almost like the Happy Gilmore reference. It's a very large and economically diverse crowd today. (laughs) (laughs) I love that though. When you get a bunch of people in there together that are all in different different places um, and have different ideas. That's, that's a cool thing. Cause that's where, that's where ideas come from and conversations, which, you know, uh, result of today, just, I have my TV on long conversations are important right now. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. yeah. Agree um, more. No. <laughs> Part of why we enjoy doing so, podcasts because we we get to actually there's no commercials, no breaks, no no uh, no one to that we are beholden to. So Dan and that's Dan, right. What should I pour first? Since I'm the only one with wine, I might as well start having some fresh wine. Can you have wine first before the pinot? Oh yeah, I like that. Okay. Okay, and Sam, okay. what did you say the name was? It's it's fresh. The Fresh Wine Co. Fresh Wine fresh, Co. Fresh Co. Yeah, Fresh Wine Company, Fresco. It's all it all fits. Um, so last year was my first year. Made the wine here uh, at this facility, and I made two wines from one vineyard, farmed by uh, a friend that most of us might know, Ross Canard, from the Venerable Farming Family. He grows these really cool Primitivo grapes in Kenwood. It's an own rooted vineyard. Uh, he dry farms it. He doesn't till it. And so far, he's been able to get away without any uh, sprays for powdery mildew or anything else. I think this year he may actually spray a dormant spray of sulfur, but that's about it. So very hands-off uh, wine, uh, wine growing, grape growing. It's, I think you'd call it regenerative. You know, he's very, he's very hands-off. And so when I get grapes like that into the winery, I have to sort of respect that and make uh, as few additions as possible. So this wine uh, saw no yeast, no ML cultures. It did come in and you know I learned a lot this first year. It got riper and riper and riper in tank. It ultimately finished at 16, above 16% alcohol. So I watered it back a little bit. Um, but other than that, uh, no additions except for some sulfur right before I bottled it. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a chillable red, so I'd put it, limited extraction, uh, and most of the extraction came in the beginning of the ferment, sort of more of an aqueous, uh, less harsh type of extraction. So it's pretty chillable, chuggable, and um, I'm almost sold out, but I've got a few more cases that I'm still trying to unload. Unload. Uh, well, I think, was it before we started recording that I said that there would be some of this left that I would share with everybody else? Um, I might not have been telling the truth. No. This is this is. <laughs> I, I, I haven't had the red. I've had the rosé uh, a couple times, Jack. Um, this is 
some fresh wine, bro. It's it's really like it's it's primitivo. It's got you know similar characteristics to Zinfandel. It's genetically, you know, kind of like Zinfandel. Um, but yeah. it's it, it's um, and I love Ross. I've known he's like my oldest friend. It's a lot fresher and cleaner than the vineyard looks, um, which is a testament to the, the fruit and to the winemaking. Um, but I'm excited. I took a little bit of this this year. We'll see if it's any good, but. Um, you know, I, I have a question about that vineyard because um, when I worked at Kenwood way back when, I thought that vineyard was always just a like it was like a rootstock vineyard, wasn't it? For the Cundies, for the Cundy um, vineyard. It, 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 yeah, um, I don't know about a rootstock vineyard. That I mean, there is no, there isn't a lot of rootstock in there, so maybe it was a like a budwood vineyard. Uh, that's totally possible. And, and actually, maybe that's what like, it was. Maybe it was a Budwood vineyard. I, I apologize. Yeah. That makes sense. That's Why would right. I... No, I mean... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Go ahead. Well, they've got six acres. Of it. it seems like a bit much uh, for just that purpose. But, uh, you know, I would totally believe that they're grafting off it because hard to imagine why else you would take the risk and plant directly into the ground, uh, you know, without any grafted rootstocks. Uh, you know, I'd be worried about phylloxera if I was going to make that investment. I think because maybe it was a virgin planting that hadn't been any grapes there before, or um, maybe just because of the soil and the dry farming, it's able to survive. Um, I'm pretty sure there is some phylloxera out there, but it seems like they're they're withstanding the pressure. So one way or another, it continues to exist in a way that I think from a technical perspective, it, it shouldn't. So I think there's something kind of magical about that. Yeah, it is cool. a little. It is a little bit of a unicorn vineyard in that way. There's not a lot uh, of, uh, you know, uh, the vines aren't crazy old, but it's what planted in the early '80s, maybe, late '70s, maybe. I think it's a, mid '90s. They're even it's you know mid '90s planting. Yeah, they're twenty wow. some odd years old. It, um, it and, is and, yeah. so bizarre. <laughs> it's so bizarre why somebody would have played at a vineyard like that in the late nineties. But I, I mean, I, I you know, think to, to my memory the the Cundy, not the Cundy winery, but the, the vineyard man, I mean, the grapevine, what was it? Sonoma grapevines had some association with it in the mid eighties. Um, uh, and, and I, and I don't know what happened after that, but at one point the, the, um, what, what was the Cundy that had Sonoma grapevines who passed away? Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, lost thought. So, um, but that's to me. But I, I can totally believe it because it's, you know, there's a lot of mystery there. It's not real clear to me what the plan was when they planted it, you know. But it's, it's. I think the style of planting is to me very '90s. The Primitivo clone came into fashion when they cleaned it up from Italy around that time. It was supposed to be more even ripener than Zinfandel, and it was. I think maybe one of the reasons they wanted to do own own root is because it's quicker and you get to make make a quicker buck and then you know maybe the vineyard dies but uh, the turnaround is is not as long so I mean that's that's what I've heard but again I don't really know it's a mystery. What about what about the spacing of it? You know, I mean, like to me that would be the kind of one of the telltales. It seems like there was a time when everyone was planting everything in what is that six by ten by two. Um, that that is double 
planted rows, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They're not double rows, but they're on the quadrilateral system. So yeah. uh, for those of you who may not know what that means, it comes, uh, this trunk comes up and then it branches off into two sort of um, zigzags that go parallel with the uh, vine row. And then the, the next row follows that, uh, the next vine follows it. So it basically looks like there's uh, four uh, branches coming off of each one. So it hangs pretty heavy, which I think is um, good for the style of wine that I'm trying to make, which is just pretty glue glue and just uh, very easy to drink. Um, so I, yeah, I rarely see a bottle unfinished, which I see, I take as a very high cost. And, and you know, that, um, that trellis scene uh, was, gained a lot of popularity in the late 80s when uh, Richard Smart from Australia was spending a lot of time over here with uh, Rich Thomas from the Santa Rosa JC. And uh, there were a lot of okay. vineyards that were planted that way. Kenwood was a big proponent about that um, sort of um, uh, uh, trellising. They could get a lot of grapes. They could uh, get what they called very, very high quality grapes. I mean, there was a vineyard Kenwood farmed out on Carragher where for Sauvignon Blanc, they would get, you know, nine, 10 tons of the acre and they'd get it ripe without any problem and it would look perfect. Um, uh, and it was organically farmed, you know, um, but- All from that but, double trellising? Well, quad, this was a quadrilateral okay. uh, cordon. Um, so on each side- there the, was Sonoma, two, the Sonoma or, Sprawl, right? Uh, or is that no, this different? was- I mean, that's totally different. These were these were four quadrilateral cordon arms and then grown straight up and down. The fruit was all hanging there. Right. Um, it, it, it looks spectacular. Um, and, and again, like 10 tons of the acre, you know, easily, especially with Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so. Why did that fall out of favor? Why isn't everybody doing it? Sounds like tremendous results. Well, Quantity doesn't necessarily mean quality. I mean, Kenwood was making a, you know, uh, $15 Sauvignon Blanc at the time, you know, and making 30,000 cases of it. Um, it. It was a different sort of, it, it was a different model than everybody in this room. Um, so. Yeah. And I think there's definitely sort of a, I don't know if it's an obsession. It's definitely a fascination with low yields in quality winemaking, which I think in a lot of cases it's totally the right call to limit yields and to have higher concentration. But you know, this is a not a super uh, barren site. It's pretty fertile, valley soil. You know, I think the vines, no matter what you do, are going to throw up a lot of crop. So you know, having a vine training system that allows them to do that uh, and sort of do what the vine was naturally going to do and working with what the vine wants to do in this case maybe is the right call. Um, and then, you know, you can produce more grapes and make it actually be a profitable farming enterprise, which is, can be rare. <laughs> what a wow, what a concept. Yeah. <laughs> Craziness. <laughs> and, and I think you could be right, Jack, in that um, I think if this was a vineyard that you fussed over, um, it would just be totally out of control. And you would, if you had concentrated flavors, um, that's when you get those over the top jammy flabby zin zin right. primitivo type wines um you know i think the way that ross is farming it and and the way that you're making these wines um definitely sort of is, is synergistic in that way that you know it 
it totally works to make a really high quality but easy you know chillable red kind of wine fresco fresco kind of wine red yeah jack talk do you want to talk a little bit about sort of your winemaking background and, and the work you do with with your uncle or do you want to dan do we yeah. switch to the pinot or, or what do you think um, I definitely want to talk about Dan's Pinot, but um, I think I want to talk about myself a little bit more. I've done a bunch of harvests uh, at this point. I think this is my 11th um, in a number of different countries um, and some really high-end wineries here in the North Bay as well. Uh, but, you know, my main focus now is working with my uncle who makes the Buckland wines. And he's uh, the owner and my boss of Magnolia. Um, and so he's got a really cool old vineyard uh, on Highway 12 here in Sonoma. And so, you know, one of the main focuses of Magnolia is providing a home for the Buckland wines, um, which I would suggest everyone go check out. They're, they're really phenomenal. And my uncle's a great, great wine. Maybe now so that I've gotten you on the show, we can, we can twist Will's arm and get him on here to talk, for, talk about himself for an hour. Yeah, if you can do that, uh, more power. <laughs> yeah. Um, want to talk about the peanut? Let's talk about the peanut. I was going to say we didn't even really get into yeah. tasting notes about the primitivo, though. My ta my tasting notes about the primitivo. Yeah. All we heard is that it was just fresh. I just heard fruit. You're just making it so that more and more of that bottle is disappearing is what you're doing. Man. But it's all good. I'm just yeah. trying to really break in the palate before you get into the Pinot. Well, what do you think, um, Sam? How, how would you characterize the Pinot? Um, it's, it's good. It's got, it's got some like kind of fresher cherry, um, Mm -hmm. Good. It's got some tannins, a little chalky. Uh, the acid is is really sort of like it's it's bright, but it's not really. It doesn't like zing um, in a way that's like sour. It just kind of has has that brightness and 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 that's where the freshness comes from, uh, Dan. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's definitely got. Go ahead, Dan. You know, I mean, uh, we were just, I, I I'm sure to, you've had this a lot. What do you think? Yeah. You know, I think that, I think I've had about 800 bottles of this. So, you know, it's, that's uh, why I sold out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's <laughs> um, like you, like you said, we spent a lot of time together uh, over last harvest, which was, you know, in varying degrees of chill, uh, depending on how much Primitivo you're drinking, probably it would have uh, made the harvest a little more <laughs> uh, relaxed. Um, but, you know, we were talking about the vineyard and then, you know, and I think it's so important to kind of parlay that into a little bit of the tasting notes. Um, you know, one of the things that we were talking about, Ross's vineyard, and I, I, I really like the sort of farming balance between doing too much and being too anal and dropping too much fruit and trying to get everything out that's under vine. And, um, you know, one of the things that stood out to me in doing some picks uh, this year was, you know, is, is just is in the way that the grass is sort of grown in under the vine, but it's not choked out too much by airflow or something like that, or, you know, varying degrees of like bunch rot and how that comes through in the wine and that sort of worry when it comes in, into the winemaking, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 
I, I'm, I'm almost surprised that we don't get more of those sort of vegetal notes. Um, and, and I think that's something that really speaks to just how powerful the sort of freshness and fruit is just coming from the vineyard straight, straight away. Uh, and then there's always the blackberry. There's always the blackberry mm -hmm. that is like, you know, going to have its, have its say. And you just get such small amounts in this wine that I think it brings it that sort of balance, you know, which is that kind of makes it, kind of makes it fresh, Jack. Right. It's got to be fresh. It's got to be fresh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just feel like a winemaking perspective. I, since the wine is natural and I'm not going to put much in it to, to get it to finish, I, and I want it to be protected, I pick mostly based on the, the acid levels, the pH primarily, just so I know I'll have an easier time uh, in when I get it into the winery and get it into bottle that'll, um, you know, be microbially safe with just a small uh, sulfur addition. So that's, you know, it all ties so into the freshness the, of- Do you remember what the what the acid and pH was when you picked it? Because like I said, the, the acid is, just, is for me, like what kind of carries the texture through, but it's not like, uh, you know, Brian, you're gonna like, like this, but it's not what you go for. Like it's it's not, and it doesn't strike me as like a high acid wine cause it's, cause it's in no. balance. Uh, it's, it strikes me as just like a, and also the, the alcohol being what it is is crazy cause it doesn't taste that way either. Um, it's, it's really interesting in that way. It's, it's cause it is, it is a nod towards the, like, what is it? Glue glue. I always say, I never say glow glow. I never say it right. Glue um, glue. glue. Um, but it's, <laughs> but it's got like more texture and structure than that usually has. Um, which kind of makes it interesting. Um, yeah. Um, the more I kind of get into this and it sits in the glass and the bottles open for a minute, um, chill drinking it fresh out of the fridge is probably great, but, um, might actually <coughs> un underserve it a little bit, to be honest. Um, having to kind of warm up and open up is like an interesting experience. I don't feel like it's as simple a wine as Jack, uh, tends to describe <laughs> it personally. I do. Yeah love how how bright the fruit is on it especially i don't know my experience with zinfandel here is even if you you know aim to pick at reasonable bricks you always end up with a combo of fresh fruit and more like jammy riper aromas and this is not the case here at i don't get any jammy components but it's not light bodied, like it's very much a medium bodied wine that works. Yes, uh, you know, you can have it chilled and it's beautiful that way, but it's, it's um, yeah, it's still a serious wine to me. Like it's, it still has structure. It's got a lot of length. Um, it opens up beautifully. I had it open for three days and it evolved because I can't drink a full bottle alone in one night. Sorry, Jack, not there yet, but over the course of three days, it evolved beautifully. It stayed delicious and um, it kept surprising me personally. So I wouldn't say it's just glue glue. But yeah, it, as you mm -hmm. kind of dig into it a little more, it gets to be kind of a big dark wine. Mm -hmm. I mean, did we actually say the alcohol for the podcast? I mean, this it's says 15.3. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a little it's wine. It's nothing but a number. <clears throat> nothing but a number, but it because it, it doesn't, it's not. It's not hot. It's not overripe. It's not an alcoholic wine at all. You don't smell it. You don't taste it. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, it drinks like it's, you know, you could say it drinks like it's 12%. I right. mean, that, I look, that's okay. I have both a family heritage and current uh, condition of not having a problem with selling Zinfandel that's over a 15% alcohol. I got no problem with that. It's nothing that I have any, like, um, um, in fact, yeah. fist, in, fist in the air. So, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Can we say, hey, Jack, is, is the idea of the, the brand is that you're not going to put out wines that have been sitting in barrel for two years? Everything's going to be basically yeah. next vintage. So like this year, we'll. That's, that's exactly right. Actually. And I probably should mention a little bit more about the brand. In general, I mean, the idea behind Fresh Wines is to support Sonoma Valley agriculture, especially people transitioning from Roundup and synthetic chemical-based farming towards regenerative. Um, so that ties into what Dan will probably talk about a little bit with his farming, and uh, I source from his company this year as well. Uh, but the idea is, yes, yeah, Sonoma Valley, regenerative agriculture, natural wines, and um then all the wines are probably going to be released within within a year of them being picked so you know the maximum will be like eight or so months in barrel and the whites and the rosés will be less okay when when was this bottled this was bottled in may of this year and it was, you know, I, I actually was kind of disappointed in the first month or two drinking it, but every month since then I've, I've had it and it's gotten better and better. So I'm, I'm excited about where it's going to go in the next, you know. I mean, I, I feel like, um, yeah, people should find a really dark place in their cellar because you put it in a clear bottle and, and, and lay it down in there because I think this has got a, it's got a long way to go. Um, so fresh wine that you can drink at five or six years old. Yeah, maybe it'll be fresh in 2030. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I feel like I've had enough compliments. I can't talk about myself too much longer. I'm going to start blushing. What? <clears throat> one comment without taking but, but, you know, one of the things is, you know, when you bottle things um, young and fresh, uh, they, they tend to open up a little bit later, right? And if you're not, you know, traditionally a winery might rack something like that two or three times during its first year. And every time you do that, you know, right. you those and, and, and yeah, you get clarity and sometimes the wines need to be racked. But for people who rack just for the sake of racking, because that's what they did in the past, um, you, you lose something. Um, in this case, you know, you're not doing anything. You're sticking it in a bottle. Um, it's it's full of flavor. It's full of aromas. That's going to take a while for it to come out. Given you know what That's Isabel good. said, over three days, it's just starting to open up. Probably. Um, yeah, that's, that's totally fair. I did. I racked it once in uh, in the spring, and that was I, I. It wasn't starting ML, and so I, I I inoculated it with the leaves from my rosé. Um, trying to get that to maybe start it off. And I did a little bit of the water add then. So either one of those things kicked off the ML really quick. Um, so I did go through one racking, but I'm, I think that was enough. This year I might not even rack uh, before I bottle. If the ML starts. 
I mean, that's, you know, you racked it one time. Um, I've worked at wineries where we would have racked it three times by then. Um, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And I've got those kind of clients. They keep us busy. <laughs> well, custom crush, you kind of like when people want you to do a bunch of extra work, right? Because, you know, billable hours. That's my. <laughs> you know, work well, I don't mind. You know, what, what else are we going to be doing? Cleaning? I'm happy to do extra wine this time of year, at least. Yeah, or just yeah, play I mean, more Ultimate Frisbee. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, that's, that's, Jack, before we move on to Dan, can you let people know so they can check out your website while we're transitioning over and they can see um, what you're offering? Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, the website is www.fresh.wine. Um, and my Instagram is fresh.wine.co. Both of those have a pretty, give you a pretty good idea of what um, the wine project is about and how you can order. Um, right now we're doing free shipping if you order four bottles. So that's, uh, that's how you get in contact with me and, and uh, buy some wine. And, and how much of the Primitivo do you got left if people get on this week? Uh, you get it quick. I think I've got 35 or 40 cases left. Um, and I started, you know, with over, well over 150. So it's, it's been going pretty quick. And I'm excited to um, sell the rest of it. So now I'm to do well, sales. Well, it sounds like a, a good Thanksgiving wine, too. Definitely. Oh, man. Yeah. Definitely. It's all about Thanksgiving wines. Yeah. Okay. Fresh dot fresh dot wine. Yep. Easy to land That uh, you know, that's a whole other how do you how you landed that one day. All right. Jack was very, very, very happy when he found that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I got here, Dan? Uh so you got 2019 Pinot, uh, we farm that Pinot on uh, Sober Vista Road. So these are getting into the Sonoma Mountain AVA. Um, I guess a little bit of background, we can talk a little bit more about the farming after, but just for the wine, just since it's it's open, you're swirling it, you know, uh, uh, it's about an acre and a half uh, VSP planted right around 2008, I think is when uh, Nick started planting that that uh, vineyard. So it's small, um, relatively young. You know, really didn't start getting first vintages off of it till about 2015. You know, got a barrel or so, and then 2016 is when we actually got about three barrels of it. So uh, in 2019, there was about five barrels. Um, so we had a punch on and we had three barrels. And, um, you know, the, uh, this was made up at your uncle's, is up at the Katuri Winery in, uh, in Glen Ellen. Well, and what's the connection between you guys, between Tony and you, Dan? Yeah, yeah, for start sure. From, so, start I mean, from the top? We can start from the top, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I'm from Sonoma. I grew up on Broadway and, um, Really, my only exposure through wine was growing up at Marioni's restaurant and uh, at the Swiss Hotel, and uh, it, it never really struck me as much as the uh, restaurant industry did um, up until I was working in the Bay Area, and I came back and worked the harvest in 2016 up at Katuri Winery, 
and I actually saw that wine was being made that way. So just to go on just with that ferment, what that means, I guess, was just, uh, you know, crushing all fruit, um, no forklift, all dumping box by box uh, in, into an old crusher, just destemming. Um, so that's how this pinot is done, um, just destemmed fruit, just crushed. And then, uh, you know, manual punch downs uh, two to three times a day. And, you know, that was what so cool what was that what did you say you got to come in come in again jack but but manual in this case is not like with punch down device but it's like punch, punching down with your hand all the way up to your shoulders i've never been that deep in a ferment until i went up there last year <laughs> and it's really is it like yeah. one guy's one guy's holding your legs and and just pushing you down into the what what well, what I learned at a really young age working there um, was you got to get your head out of the tank when you're punching down and I as short um, you know you kind of like got to lean all the way in and then you punch down and what the reason that you're punching down right is there's this there's what there is to punch down is the the cap of of the grape skins forms this like layer on top of the juice. And, and you want to mix that stuff back in and get air in there. And, and But the reason that it's there is because there's this pocket of, of CO2 in between the juice and the bottom of the skins, pushing the skins up. So when you push down and you're using your hands and your head is like, you know, you're leaning in this, all the CO2 rushes in and, and um, you know, sometimes you could do that on purpose, but most of the time it just kind of like gave you a headache and didn't make you feel very good. Um <laughs> Yeah, you you really have to look out for that real CO two blast that you yeah. have to get, um, and sometimes you know other noxious gases that can, <laughs> depending on how um, these ferments go, because they're all spontaneous ferments. Um, they're they're all native yeast. I mean, this is this is extremely rustic, and I think I didn't realize really how um, how like rare that exposure was. Um, and you know, it, it I, I thought. I thought that all wine had pretty much been mechanized. I have an engineering background. I was like, okay, everything has just gone to uh, efficiency and you know AI and computers and and all this stuff. Um, and so that was that was a, a, a real head turner to the real craft of making wine as I saw it, you know, at that at that time and really got me hooked. So that was 2016. Um, that's obviously first vintage, you know, starting to work with small vineyards of Pinot. Uh, small vineyards of like Merlot, small meaning four acres, you know, and then working with Chardonnay, really just doing simple estate stuff back then. It was about 800 cases. Um, and uh, I, I stayed, I did 17, 18. And by that, that point, you know, I'd quit my old job and been on full time. So it was me and Nick working with Sonoma Mountain Winery uh, and that label, which was operating under Tony's, basically Tony's, Tony's bond. Um, up, at, up at the winery. So that was Nick's project that he started in 2009. I came in and partnered with him in 2016. Um, and basically by 2017, I was making the wines with him uh, and I was practically living up there and back living at my mom's house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, so basically just got hooked and then just kind of hung around uh, long enough for various things to happen. And now I'm sitting here uh, running the project myself and sort of transitioning away from the snow mountain wines to just my own cuvees uh, for a while. And now I'm making wine off the mountain and at Magnolia. 
Um, where you get to use a forklift. Where I still can't use a forklift. Still can't use a forklift. That's smart. No, that's probably smart. Uh, and I and I think that like people should, you know, the the legend and lore of of Katuri Winery. It's, you know, everything about what you envision when you see a modern winery, which is like a flat crush pad, some equipment, a forklift or two, um, you know, big stainless steel tanks. Even even in you know whatever quote unquote the natural wine world that's how 999.9 percent of the wine in the world is made um right. at, at katuri winery it's sort of like hanging off this precipice um over a creek the <laughs> the driveway is incredibly steep and the crush pad is like multi-layered with a with a steep so it's it's um for an engineer um <laughs> did that take a little like wrapping your head around or was it just like so refreshing to be um you know in uh, off the flatlands yeah i mean i mean definitely it was a complete mind shift as where i had to move away from those ideas and really take an sort of inward dive into a expressive and sort of um you know intrinsic like artistic expression of how to make these wines in an extremely and like obviously inefficient manner right it's like this this is uh this is going to you know, work your body in a certain way where uh, you you are you are fully tested. Like processing, you know, fifty tons, which is kind of what we got up to up there. Was it felt like a real like five thousand psychotic achievement? Yeah, I mean, it feels like you know you're you're working that same amount of hours, right? It's right. like so um, you're processing six tons in a day. It could be like up until four thirty in the morning, sort of things. Um, so it's like you know, I that was a real labor of love. It kind of really showed that, you know, to me and that, you know, if, if there was something where you'd be like, why am I doing this? It must be because you really enjoy it, um, you know, to that, to that level. And then it, it you know, you also hope that, uh, that with that, that there's a different expression into the wine that your actual literally, you know, sweat and blood going into the wine makes a difference. And that, you know, people like can get that out. And, uh, and I, I think so. I'm still like a firm believer in it, but I am also a firm believer that there is a balance between those two worlds and those two realities. You know, um, you can go a little too ridiculous on one side or the other, you know, to me. So finding striking balance there is really, really key. But I mean, I used to get in huge uh, debates with with Nick about the, just the term efficiency. I mean, I mean <laughs> <laughs> because there really was, you know, the idea that that was what was not only ruining wine in, in the more like, you know, you know, a, a emotional sort of debate, but it was ruining the entire world, which I just think is kind of, I get, you know, I get it. And we can go into that. That's a whole nother argument to get into again. Not that we'd like to derail this whole thing, but it's, you know, again, it's all about balance. And, and I think that wine, obviously, at the end of the day is hopefully about balance. Hopefully you can balance in alcohol and acid and and then all our Katuri menu residual sugar at times. <laughs> so yeah. Um that's a little bit of the spiel. Um did I miss anything? Well I'll just say that being up at that spot, you know, I I've made wine for, you know, my whole adult life basically and I'd never seen anything like that. And I, 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 you know, it was just a really magical experience being up there. And I learned as much 
helping out, you know, around my vintage job, helping up there as I have, you know, any other harvest. So I, I actually unlearned as much as I learned, which was probably more important. So, I, you know, I'm incredibly thankful to have be been able to spend time up there and learn from those guys. You yeah, guys. there's there's no doubt. It's a really it's a really special place, you know. And I'm nothing but grateful to have just stumbled upon it, and then, you know, have Tony let me be up there basically for that amount of time. It's kind of a miracle, <laughs> surviving through all that <laughs> for, for the both of us. I'm sure, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, what what an entrance into the wine world, and you know, it's. Uh, I I hope that that place exists for much much longer, right? I hope it I hope it can stay there forever somehow. Yeah, Dan, I, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but it was the first wine club that I ever joined was the Katuri Wine Club because I had had the wines working in restaurants when I was, you know, 16 through 19. I think it was at Petrucci's in Petaluma, two, uh, mm-hmm. 1989, and trying the Katuri wines and joined the wine club and then made the brilliant decision that I didn't want to have anything shipped to me. I wanted to go pick them up at the winery. Nice. And so picking them up and getting to the gate and driving up the driveway and the dogs chasing me up there and seeing the overgrown vineyards on, you know, it was very different from what you were used to seeing and, and a lot of blue tarps being used and a lot of barrels that looked like they had been around for quite a while. Um, but there was something about the taste of the wine that was so different from all the other wines that were out there on the market. It was just, you were just attracted to it. Oh Yeah. Yeah, it still happens. There's still some people. I mean, Tony doesn't really let anybody up with uh, the pandemic, obviously, but, uh, you know, people still do come by and, you know, hang out with Tony if he's got some time and open up some old bottles and he'll pull some stuff out of the old cinder block uh, library. Um, Got some got some wines in there that that don't that definitely do not exist anywhere else in the world for sure. Uh, I used to tell people, if you want to try wine the way it was when Jesus was around, it's like as close as <laughs> as close as you were going to get. That's pretty much ma- it's made that way, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But so, um, Yeah, so Dan, transition into to what you're doing today. Yeah, so um, today uh, we, you know, I guess for... 2020 took uh, quite a step back in the whole um, production side, you know, tonnage side, especially moving into, you know, custom crush. And uh, we really just used a state fruit. Um, You know, I should mention, you know, like uh, I do this with my buddy, David Rothschild, who uh, is really doing a lot of vineyard management. And, um, and, you know, we have just on Sober Vista, just between leased vineyards, we're up to just as of yesterday, I think we're up to about 15 acres um, between six different parcels. And, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping to expand that, you know, ideally we picked up another, you know, Syrah vineyard on uh, Napa Road. And um, so just slowly piecing this sort of management together and then, you know, hoping to use mostly estate fruit. You know, we, we want to follow in that philosophy of, you know, if we can, you know, and we are available, you know, to do the, the manual, you know, work. Uh, a, a lot of times in order to do the farming and then have, you know, complete vineyard con- control that way and then make the wines as direct as possible with minimal, well, really zero intervention. Um, that is the goal. And um, so that means spontaneous ferments uh, all the way through. And, um, 
not a lot of temperature control. We'll see how I feel about that now that I actually have access to some <laughs> like technology and some ability to maybe control a ferment a little bit. We'll see how much I want to break on that and break away from it, depending on the type of wines. But, you know, I think uh, that we'll, we'll focus on doing and some proof of concepts. So, you know, another one of the wines I think that I dropped off was the Aureo. Uh, that's you know, the, that's the, the macerated rosé. That's a macerated rosé. Yeah. So it's because we're doing spontaneous ferments, you know, we've been playing around with, you know, at a little bit of skin, you know, addition, maybe using pumice from over here, reusing it in a different ferment, putting a rosé on, uh, you know, in this example, Merlot rosé on Chardonnay skins, uh, or maybe doing a Cab rosé on Sauvignon Blanc skins. Um, and really just, having that soak, having that additional nutrient soak, finding quote unquote natural ways uh, of just, you know, getting more nutrient into the juice, uh, finding a way to really get ferments that go all the way, find really healthy ferments and, um, you know, work with wine that way in a, in a obviously in the sense, a, a cleaner, a little bit more controlled environment. Um, I can't tell you how awesome it is just to have, you know, um, the ability to steam barrels, <laughs> uh, you know, compared to how we used to rinse barrels and the actual, you know, physical toll beyond that. So these days things are a lot easier. I feel like I've like gone into a first retirement right now, just processing, what was it? 11, 12 tons. Um, yeah. 12. And it just feels like nothing when you're at the custom crush place, you know, it's, we'll see when I can finally get my own O2 there how much more annoying I can be uh, just showing up and uh, <laughs> messing with stuff. Is that when you get to, is that when you get to drive the forklift? Is that, is that Jack? That's when he gets keys. That's when he gets keys. But that's only keys to the door, yeah. not keys to the forklift. See y'all got to take off. Pleasure. Bye John. Thank you. Okay, John. Adios amigo. Adios. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's 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 the plan. What we did, uh, and it's well, so farming. Uh, you know, this Pinot farming uh, four acres of Merlot and farming Chardonnay, uh, and that's and, all on Sober Vista. That's all on Sober Vista, right? So the P the Pinot Vineyard I know is is like right along the road, across from the driveway that we take to go to like the Dos Limones Freiburg Vineyard, right? Yeah, exactly. And then exactly. where's the Chardonnay and the and the Merlot? And then just picked up Chardonnay just uh, east of the Pinot, so just down the road a little bit. Okay. And then the, the two main Chardonnay vineyards are are up uh, Sober Vista a little bit, um, right when it splits off the pipeline or when it starts going out to Lake Josefina. So right. if you're looking up the hill, so this is Terra Chardonnay. There's uh, two acres there. And then if you go up to uh, what is called by the gate Rancho Menace, um, which is owned by the Menace family, but, you know, they... They really haven't been tending to it a lot. So some of these vineyards we took over that didn't get picked the year before, that didn't even get pruned the year before. Uh, and we're sort of making sure that they're revitalized and that they're taken care of right. and that they're being farmed uh, sustainably uh, also. So yeah, we're Fresh sort Wines bought, uh, we bought some Chardonnay from you guys this year. And um, I mean, I'm so excited about it. And more importantly, the concept of you guys taking a vineyard that was farmed, you know, historically with uh, a bunch of herbicides and all that and, and, and taking it into a very 
you know, much more hands-off uh, farming style and you're, you know, spreading compost and treating the earth right in a way, you know, but you're transitioning. You're, being, you're basically taking soil that's been denuded over years and transitioning into very uh, healthy and potentially fertile soil. So I'm really stoked on the Chardonnay that you guys grew for me this year and I can't wait to release it. Yeah, I can't wait to taste it again. You know, that, that watching that sort of evolve. And I think over the years, as we, as we get to have more control of that vineyard and if we keep the main, like maintain these practices, really how the fruit evolves and how we track how much, you know, actual fruit is coming out. Since to go back to that point earlier, that sort of ton per acre number that, that we're focused on, obviously we don't, we don't really care about it that much. You know, I don't, I, we don't need it to be six tons an acre. And if it was just two, that would that would be fine, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But, you know, a lot of these things were being, uh, you know, there were trellis, they were pruned in order to try and sort of maximize that as I think that was, you know, a classic uh, vineyard management practice, you know, um, up all around the valley for that obvious reason, you know, have more fruit, the owner, you know, can hopefully get a little bit more money back. Um, but I, I, I think that that does have a little bit of a toll on, on, on the vines as well. And so, um, yeah you know, pruning things back from four canes to, to two for uh, a couple of vintages and see how that goes. Um, allow for a little bit more like root development to come back. And, and especially as the microbiology in the soil comes back, I, I think that that's really exciting, you know, and, and give these plants a, some time to get some, some, some real grounding, you know, um, uh, nutrient and, and like health going again and try and get some real vigor back into them. They got really punished when they just like didn't really get uh, pruned for that one year, for example, and they just, you know, you have suckers that just don't get pruned and then they, they're just growing through the ground, you know, out of the base of the trunk. And, um, and that's a lot of work in order to get them back into uh, really, really good shape. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as we go through that, that process, I think, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to pruning this year. I'm super excited about it. And, uh, which I will probably regret, you know, around like February 20th. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, because it, it'll really just be two of us and then we'll get some, some part-time work and hopefully, hopefully a couple interns uh, who are interested in doing some, some like wintertime work uh, and looking at more of the, of our, of our farming, that would be, that would be rad to get as many hands up there as we can and get as much support. But yeah. Yeah, and so what exactly you're doing a, a Pinot, a Merlot, a, and a Chard? Pinot, Merlot, Chard, uh, and then we get a, a, some some cab uh, from a friend of ours who, like you know, goes back a while in working with Tony and Nick. Um, that's on Carragher Road, and then there's also small Zinfandel plots on Carragher Road, um, and one that's kind of out in right on the border of kind of Glen Ellen and Highway 12. So there are some even smaller parcels than that, that, you know, we get, I mean, how much, how much Zen did I drop off uh, this year? It was like 0. 0.6 tons, you know, and it, uh, yeah. like a barrel, <laughs> maybe a little barrel and a little bit of a keg. Yeah. So like I'll do, you know, well, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, minimize the sort of wine that we have to hang on to and bottle for two or three years, you know, especially since I don't have a place to store it besides, you know, gross cough and you end up getting into this life of paying for warehouse fees. 
So having a fast turnaround sort of custom crush um, business model uh, is is uh, is ideal, and I think that's kind of the market that we're in anyway. Working with, you know, zero zero wines, natural wines, uh, fresh wines, mm-hmm. um, and so on. On top of those, making those varietals, like I said, there's a couple rosés um, that are macerated rosés, um, and I did not make any Chardonnay this year. Actually, we sold all of it, so that was. That was, that was fine. That's sort of been, I, I was fine not making like anyone. I mean, to be honest, it was like ready for a little bit of a break, but <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's our project. So I think it was uh, total for 2020 was uh, eight different wines. We'll see eight, eight skews. We'll see if I want to throw more blends in there. Things always change, you know, you know how it is, but uh overall trying to simplify the whole wine list that we have. You know, I think that there's between Sonoma Mountain and between Zen Contact and Bordozo and Di Marioni and all this stuff, you know, there's about 30 different SKUs that I'm managing. So it's um, a wide variety of different different types of, of uh, wines. But yeah, Pinot. I'm rambling, so we can, we can get drinking Pinot. <laughs> And when yeah, you talk about, nice. sorry, Sam, did you get a bottle of the macerated rosé? I did, and I, and I put it in the fridge, um, but I put it in the fridge a while ago, man. I could probably go pull it out and open it. It's, after hearing Dan talk about it, I, I definitely want to get into it. The, the Pinot is great. The Pinot, um, you know, it, it has, to me, signatures of Couturier Winery, and that's, and that's uh, you know, especially sort of aromatically, um, which you know, some people love, some people don't. For me, it's very, um, you know, it's like this, what wine of my childhood tastes and smells like. So it's like a very, there's a very like comforting, homey kind of feel to it. Um, but as it, and a ton of, ton of tannins, real, um, a little even almost too drying right out of the bottle. Um, but it's another one that's sort of like, um, as it's, uh, as it's opening up a little bit, um, some really like classic Pinot Noir flavors, um, you know, a little bit of that sort of like a mm-hmm. little bit of that Bing cherry, but a lot of like, you know, sort of like sauteed mushroom kind of deal um, that like sort of unctuousness. Um, again, you know, it's, it's something that you bottled relatively young, um, but I, I think it's probably merits um, laying down for a while too. Um, you know, it tastes good now, but it probably just get better as it's opening up on my, on my desk here. Uh, yeah. You know, those, those really sort of like, again, kind of classic, uh burgundy kind of flavors and, and a little bit of that crunchy kind of tannin too so um it's good tasty you know i love i love sober vista road yeah 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 for sure i mean it's it, the, you know this is one of the the things with the wine that's so important to you know think about just not having any any antioxidant in there right like to me the largest challenge and especially learning and working with pinot noir which is probably me getting way in over my head uh, way too fast, um, as you know. And Tony always said in in his ultimate, you know, knowledge that like you know, Pinot is basically as is sort of a, a white fruit. You know, as far as like availability of nutrient and how just how fragile it can be, I think during its ferment and you know, really sensitive to sort of temperature and those sharper tones, those those little bits of fruit tannin and and, and how they come in really speak to that. You know, how many punch downs did it did it get? Like how many uh, when was this topped? What was the actual topping schedule? You know, and I think for, for, for 2019, 
we, I did an okay job in topping. I don't think I was gonna, I did a super stellar job, you know, to be, to be honest, we we're trying to hit that every two week mark, but you know, things are, I guess a little bit made a little bit more difficult, but I, that's such an important profile. And I guess that's what I want to say just about working with Pino. That's the real learning lesson is have those delicate punch downs, you know, um, when you're, when you're in there and if you're able, well, if, if anyone is crazy enough to want to do just all manual punch downs, part of the main thing is being able to feel those local temperatures and where you have hot pockets and where you have spots and you can, you can get that ferment more homogenized and, you know, get more air in there and gas that thing up and get the temperature down a little bit since that's your only hope, you know, and I've, I've seen people go in with, uh, with even just with punch down tools up at the winery and just beat, uh, the hell out of the, out of the cap. And, you know, when that, that makes a, it can, that can make a significant difference in, in just that amount of maceration and the skin breaking down and, you know, in, when you're making wines that, that aren't filtered as well, you know, how that comes off on the palate. Like it's, Pinot is uh, so sensitive, I think, to the, to the inputs of the winemaker. And uh, that's, that's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm excited, you know, that we have it. I'm also excited that it's only an acre and a half and it's, I'm not <laughs> trying to make uh, 20 acres of Pinot and trying to do large lots, but I, I, I really do. I really do love working with it. And I love feeling like sometimes, you know, I, I, I'll open up a, like a 16 Pinot or something. And I, I feel like it's, it has all this French uh, in, influence into it. And then in, you know, it feels like it's just such a burgundy uh, and sometimes I feel like I'm, it's like having this Pinot that's from the Loire. And then sometimes I'm just like, it's all those things. And it's also just pure Sonoma too. And just, uh, warmth, yep. you know, it's, it's a fun thing. It's a fun thing to work with for, for us. And Dan, this yeah. year is still playing Chardonnay, right? And then the, yeah, the vineyard has, uh, two short, uh, rows of Chardonnay in it also. Well, isn't, wasn't there something that I saw on Instagram? Was it one of you guys who did Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in the same fermentation or am I Zinfandel and Pinot Noir? Was there something like that that I saw somewhere or am I crazy? Well, we always pick this thing at the, at the same time, but it, and it is just a small amount. It's, you know, five. not in the same fermenter. And it's all, it's all co-fermented oh, so it's co it's done in a sort of like field blend, if you will. But I mean, it's, I think that that was just Nick's um, uh, idea, just to throw in, you know, another another ride on there. Maybe have a little softness. I could change the aromatics a little bit on the on the sort of Pinot. Um, so that's in that is in this. It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go cool. get that rosé. Mm -hmm. You got talk amongst yourselves. Well, yeah, Dan. In yeah. the meantime, tell us tell us how people can get a hold of some of these wines. Uh, so there is uh, the website, Sonoma Mountain Winery. That's MTN. So it's abbreviated SonomaMTNWinery.com. There is a shop set up there. Um, and then as I'm transitioning into the next thing, there's uh, right now, there's like an Instagram handle for d.marioni.wine. Um, and that's just this starting out. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, I'm starting to get that. I'm starting to get that. For all the uh, 2019, looking forward to that. But uh, the Snow Mountain website should have all these different cuvées. It'll have um, some of the older Snow Mountain wine, and there's uh, even a little bit of Tony's wine on there. I think still, there's 
some. And then, uh, yeah, some of our other labels from, from 2018, some of our Negociant projects, which we were buying wine there for, I mean, buying grapes there for, um, for a couple of years, 2017, 2018. And I guess, yeah, 2019 also. All right, Sam, tell it now, have I ever had a macerated rosé? Like, like, what is that term? What does that exactly well, mean? Isabel, would you call <laughs> Autotata a, a macerated rosé? kind of a macerated rosé. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think it varies on who's making it. So Dan should probably explain what he means by uh, macerated rosé, as in how long it was macerated for. Yeah, right. The, the the real, I guess, the process of it is very simply. Um, well, in in however many varying degrees the winemaker wants, but as, as as a simple way, just direct pressing red fruit onto uh, pressed white skins. So, one of the things that I, I I love about this is trying to get as much use out of out of our byproducts uh, in, in, in the winery as possible. But uh, I mean, also utilizing all of that nutrient, you know, to me, this is like that saying of, you know, using the entire animal sort of, um, and, and, and it comes into a, uh, you know, a, a real functional uh, sense, you know, in trying to get a full ferment. So in this example, uh, this is direct press Merlot fruit uh, onto a press cake of Chardonnay. And uh, that was- yeah. The press cake Chardonnay. with- Chardonnay skins. Sorry. Yeah, but so- Chardonnay, Chardonnay skins with stems or was it, was the Chardonnay destemmed or was so, it- Yeah, for, for this, we actually, um, so this is the, the fun thing about doing this project is trying to time everything. So you have, yeah. uh, you bring in all the, all the Chardonnay one day and then direct press all of it and you have this whole cake. So that means that you have to bring in Merlot also. And we take that whole cake of Chardonnay uh, for this 2019 and we fed it back through the destemmer, which is just a, I wouldn't recommend to anybody that they do this. And it's it's just way too much work. It's a gigantic mess. Um, but we really wanted to get those stems out because uh, we wanted a, f a, a fully just a, a white uh, a cap in, in, in the fermenter. Because essentially when this, when this wine is fermenting outside, uh, this all outdoor ferments up at the winery. And uh, you know we had a full white uh, a cap of just Chardonnay skins, which also got manual punch down. So it's sort of fermented just like any other of our reds out there. It's just the only one that has this white, pink, brown, interesting cap to it. Um, so it ferments fully dry like that, and then we pressed it off. And that was uh, three barrels, I think. And you press it off as soon as it's dry or a little bit yeah. before? Or, yeah, just when it dry. hits dry dry uh, to our means of measuring that, you know, which is just a hydrometer. So it dry, was quite pressed off with a couple grams left in it and then finished, um, finished as much as it. And, 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 and Dan, what, is it, what is it that you're looking to getting from the white skins? Uh, I think that it's mostly nutrient. Um, I, I also like the, uh, the, the bit of tannin that, that comes in. Um, and I, it, it really, truly, um, as it's kind of a surprise, but um, you know, the, it was on the skins for 
10 days uh, fully, fully for me, I think it's 10 to 12, I can't remember. Probably, probably just over 10 days. Um, you know, it, it pulls a lot of texture out of the skins. It pulls a bunch of tannin out and it made the wine truly more orange than it had been in, in previous years. So it really is, I think people would, and when it, when it does hit the market, I think that people will end up calling it just an orange wine, even though it was made from pink juice and white skins and all this stuff. Um, and it, but it also just tastes that way, you know, it, it has that extraction, uh, it, it has that like fruit tannin, it has that additional drying sense on, on the palate. Uh, and I love those things. Most importantly, I just want a rosé to ferment naturally all the way dry and not have, you know, 10 to sometimes 20 grams per liter left of, you know, glucose fructose. And it's just this, it's, it's such a, uh, it's such a common, you know, issue, you know, you know, it, it's, it's obviously someone would just simplify their life and just inoculate the juice, you know, and like have like a temperature controlled ferment. So just being really stubborn and trying to do that in that, uh, in that like non-interventional like way um, makes a kind of fun product, you know, and, and again, luckily it's only three barrels. Um, so uh, that's, that's really what I'm trying to get out of it. You know, I think that Striving for a bit of that tannin, that additional dryness is, is totally something that I like. Um, but most importantly, I want to give any ferment the best chance that it has to, you know, be healthy and go dry, go, go strong. It is. That was one of the things I learned. Go ahead, Jack. About Rosé. Sorry. One of the things I learned about uh, Rosé from, from your old business partner, Nick, was that how hard it is to go dry. I mean, and that's why I foot tread it. Uh, when I do mine, because I'm just trying to get what I can out of the skins so that the yeast will be able to finish the ferment. And uh, I think your use of, of white skins on, on the pink juice is really almost revolutionary. It's like it's a it's a nutrient ad without adding anything that's not, you know, growing on a grapevine. And then the resulting color is so beautiful. It's a, really one of the more unique wines I've had in a long time. I love this wine. Yeah. Well, thank you. It is this sort of like um, it. It had you know. I could see definitely it being sort of pigeonholed in the orange wine segment, um, yeah. but it has this this like Merlot kind of plumminess, especially the front of the palate, and almost mm -hmm. like Merlot skin. I mean, not Merlot skin, plum skin. Um, that uh, you know, if you like grow up in Sonoma eating Santa Rosa plums, um, you know that kind of merlot flavor um, but with an orange wine kind of profile and you know like structure and and, and texture um, it is it is super interesting um, yeah i mean and that's the that's a point i didn't even mention i mean most of the you know elevage of these wines you know when we press them off they're not this isn't going to tank this is going to neutral barrels uh, normally you know we'd always try to the best of our you know financial means and stuff to have rosés and white barrels and all that but sometimes you just don't know you know so we would just end up with neutral reds neutral whites um and just give them something to sit in and sort of finish finish off and and then uh yeah it's only in there for uh probably eight months yeah probably seven seven eight months um but you know i think the reason i say that is because i think that what would be more interesting is having that sort of vessel. So if we were to press off to 
uh, Quevery or, you know, press off to Amphora or press off to Concrete or press off, you know, you're going to have a way different wine, you know, for all those scenarios. So it's just, it's just fun to think about those other I mean, and how they're going to work with that, um, with that skinny flavor. Uh, that's funny, skinny flavoring, uh, skin-like flavor, I guess. Um, you know, I think is, I think is pretty exciting. Uh, I, I wonder if having it a little bit of oak influence, not flavor, but yeah. you know, sort of helps soften some of those skin tannins, yeah. um, you know, brings, brings things through. You're, I think you're muted, right? No. Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying some of that microoxidation from right. the barrels. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Sam, or, or, did someone say piquette earlier? Yeah, there's piquette in the... Oh. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna keep the paquette cold until you get here on saturday brian and um we'll open it then i feel like a good two days three days in the fridge before i open it on my own property <laughs> <laughs> but what is the maquette uh, what is it made from what what are the grapes that are in there moon mountain gewurztraminer seriously yeah is that uh, is that from uh, from morgan yeah, Alta Vista. Uh, where I got it from, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Oops. Strike that from the record. <laughs> yeah. Um, great. I, I've been so down on this wine and uh, or this piquette right before we bottled it. And then it just, it's amazing. It just tastes so good. So it's it's a piquette, uh, which is water on Gerbert skin. And then uh, we, we fermented that, and then we um, racked that to tank when it was dry. And this is a collab between Dan and myself, by the way. And then we uh, sweetened it up. We wanted it to be sparkling, so we put some of the hard press from the Sauv Blanc I made this year. About 20 gallons of that went in there. And um, mm. then we realized this acid, so we got some lemon juice. And out of that, so it's basically it's just water, grape skins, grape juice, and lemon juice. Um, so this is, I guess, you almost a zero zero wine, and it's got this really great tea flavor, but then it's like super sparkling. Um, it tastes like it tastes like a white clock, and it has the same ABV roughly. So it's <laughs> it's totally it's white claw, but it's more yeah, dangerous. Than that. It's yeah. rose flavored white claw. Which yeah, is it is a non-existent yeah. flavor so far, is my understanding. Yeah, Isabel's right. That's totally what it is. <laughs> now, this is the first time I've ever heard of. Okay, in terms of acidifying a wine using actual lemon juice, like, can you do well, that? It's, it's piquet. No, it's not wine. That's what no. But I'm it. saying, in so here's here's my thing with, <laughs> like, the I'm beverage. getting more and more sensitive to acid in wine, and I can usually tell when a wine's been acidified. Um, and my thing though, is I'm wondering, is there different types of acid? Because sometimes I like, a, I like, I prefer like a limey type of acid as opposed to a lemon type of acid. And I'm wondering, is there like different products on the market where you can have like a grape, more towards grapefruit, more towards lime, more towards lemon? Like, is it that kind of thing? Not exactly that, well, but you're not completely off. Every acid has a different acidifying power. Right. Um, and so, and different acids have different 
parts in which, or moments in which you will feel them. So for example, tartaric acid is very much at the end of the palate. And so if you have a wine that's slightly high ethanol, adding tartaric really helps bring freshness and brightness at the end. However, tartaric acid can be quite tarty. And so right. in overly acidified wines, you get kind of this sticky finish um, that makes you not want to drink more of it. And so it, it's, that's when it can be problematic. Um, malic acid will come in in the middle of the palate and is a great way um, to acidify without having that sticky end and a great way to kind of like balance out, with, balance out with tartaric. Unfortunately, malic acid is not stable in wine and microbiologically, it's gonna be changed into lactic acid unless you're sulfuring and unless uh, you know, you're making whites and roses that you're choosing not to make go through mallow. And then citric acid, I don't believe is commonly used in winemaking. Um, it's only used in sanitation. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not particularly safe, but I think the risk of having a wine or a piquette that's low alcohol and like 3.8 pH versus a piquette that's low alcohol and 3.2 pH is worth having the citric acid in there, even though some lactic acid bacteria could get in there and eat it. You know, we, we were extra sanitary with this wine because I know you know, it's not as forgiving as most wines from a micro standpoint. So um, we tried to be as careful as we could. And I think also having heavy under pressure is helpful. Um, I don't think, I think it's harder for microbes to go under pressure in general. So right. we're hopeful that, uh, you know, right now it tastes clean, clean and I think it will for the next year or so. And hopefully it's all gone by then. Yeah. So, so this we'll is find really out on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna save a little bit of that um, macerated rosé too, right? There's, there's, and I got, I got two bottles, but I'll save some. Okay. Yeah, I'll save some. You could just, I think that Brian's first question was, did I hear someone say piquette? I mean, I, I think that's gonna be the question of uh, either not 2021 or maybe the, our roaring twenties. You know, when they happen, you know, it's gonna be. It's much to the much to the chagrin of all the wine people in the world. I think that it's <laughs> it could definitely be um, something, you know. And I think you could do a whole podcast just based on that, you know. Maybe on Saturday. Well, we've done we've done we've now had three or four. Maybe this is the fourth or fifth winemaker that we've talked to. Uh, Wild um, Ark, uh, Casey Graybell, um, Monterio. Talked to Monterio Patrick, I think. Okay. They're making a. They're we we got to talk to him. They're making a piquette out. Yeah, I mean it's definitely um, uh, it's it as sort of a from the wine industry as a response to um, the bullshit claim of s these hard seltzers as sort of healthful beverages um, to to make something that's hard seltzer like in both sort of flavor and alcohol content, but that's actually like made from real stuff uh, made from real grapes and made from, you know, um, I imagine the lemons were organic uh, grown at old Hill, you know, or, you know, grown at, at Oak Hill farm or something. Um, that's, that's when you can make, if you want to try and make a healthful claim about an alcoholic beverage, um that actually sticks that might be the place 
Well, and it's kind of like, it's very like old worldy kind of in the way that grappa is where you're getting another use out of one of your byproducts, right? And Isabel, is that like, did you grow up knowing about Piquette? Is that something that in France, like people just had on the shelves? So it's not exactly that. It, it used to be a very long time ago before my time, um, okay. especially when uh, water wasn't potable. It was important to add uh -huh. some alcohol and uh, change the pH for it to be microbiologically a little more um, safe or have less going on in there. Um, but then piquet evolved to be uh, an insult in the wine industry for bad wine. And so, huh. for example, I'm from an AVA that's very poorly recognized and that suffers quite a bit from people calling the wine piquet. Um, so it's, it, I believe that in the natural wine movement in France, there's like a reappropriation of the product and the term. However, um, in the more traditional sense and more widely speaking, people still associate piquets not to the actual product that we're talking about right now, but to bad wine specifically. Well, and we're talking about Costier de Nîmes. You're talking about that region as having a bad reputation. Yes. We either get bad or we get, oh, these are nice little wines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was very well. <laughs> shame on shame on those of us that want to drink a quality wine at a good price every day oh yeah we don't we don't let it fade us that's for sure yeah all right well isabel what the hell have you been up to obviously uh finished maybe with picking grapes definitely finished with picking grapes uh yeah. was a was short and intense um to say the least unfortunately you know, we deal with a lot of um, very late sites and late, late ripening varietals. So we lost a lot of our crop to um, the three smoke episodes. Uh, and so it's been challenging and, and, uh, and pretty heartbreaking because it was a very complicated growing season. Uh, the drought was, well, it made, made things complicated from the get-go. Um, you know, we didn't have single drop of water in February, which uh, was problematic, obviously. And then COVID made farming practices slightly more complicated. Um, and so, you know, everybody powered through in hopes of making the best vintage as possible. And, uh, and then that wasn't really um, offered to us, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but what I've tasted that has been brought in um, has been like absolutely gorgeous. It's been interesting to see how even though it was a drought year and usually those uh, translate to quite like stressy tannins and reds, um, a lot of what I'm seeing is very delicate profiles with wines that had that became ripe at rather low alcohol levels, um, very silky tannins, very like beautiful, elegant uh, wines. So I think, you know, because people learned a lot from 2017, a lot of people forfeited their crops and what was picked and what will be on the market, I think is gonna be really lovely and worth drinking for sure. Um, so that's, you know, that's pretty cool though, that, that what, did, what we did get to make is, uh, is pretty delicious. I don't know how 
Jack and Dan feel about it, but um, that's. Yeah, well, the roses that you are tasting really good. And I can just tell you from a personal standpoint, it was a lot of fun having both of you guys in the winery, you know, like some of my really best friends in the whole world making wine with me. You know, I'm going to earlier, but this was a really tough year. And this is our first year as a business. And there were times when I felt like I was, you know, I had the whole world on my shoulders, but it was just, you know, sappy, but it was really great to have you guys as a part of, you know, the whole crew this year. And I don't know if I would be able to get through without you. So I, I, you know, as, as the representative of Magnolia in this conversation, cannot thank you guys enough for making the wine that you made. It was um, a really tough year and, and you all made it, y'all made it fun the whole time. So thank you. Right back at you. Thanks, Jack. This is one of those moments oh, where we yeah. wish this, you know, we, we released the video because the way that both Dan and Isabel sort of did this little like head in hand thing as, <laughs> as Jack yeah. was paying them their compliments was, was a magical moment. And I guess we, we didn't even really sort of say that um, somehow with our like offbeat single vineyard rosé program, at least that's all it was this year at Magnolia, <laughs> uh, but somehow that's like uh the most conventional of the of the, the magnolia wine services <laughs> custom yes. crush clients is is the Audutet program or or the 16600 rosé program or however however it'll let, end up shaking traditional up. not conventional uh, I traditional say. i will traditional all right all right <laughs> i don't know if that's bad but no like it's very much um it's it's kind of an old I'm world approach of somewhere in between um, low in lowish intervention, um, but there's definitely like intention in the winemaking from the get-go. We have clear ideas of what we want to make and what our sites uh, are able to give us, and the idea is to guide guide the ferment as much as possible to express the site, and so. I just want to make sure that I don't get any stuck ferments. I like to make sure that um, temperature control, for example, is very important to me because uh, that's how I can control uh, how bright and how pure the fruit characteristics come out. Um, so that's a big thing for us. And then obviously we tend to uh, harvest riper than most of Jack's clients and we come in at the latest point in the season and we macerate the longest because of the varietals we we choose to work with um so it's definitely a, a different approach i would say yeah, what i love you know, uh, about working with you guys is, you know magnolia is able to accommodate the zero zero dan marioni project it's able to accommodate fresh wines and buckland and it's able to accommodate uh 6600 and no one's stepping on each other's toes. And most importantly, everything is farming driven. You know, you guys are the big wigs of organic farming in Sonoma. And that's, I mean, that's super important. You guys are taking, keeping so much land, you know, from being developed and from being sprayed with all sorts of uh, pesticides. And that's what really unites, I think, everyone in this facility, as far as I can tell. People are really trying to be stewards of the land and, and supporting the right um, 
what I would say is the right type of firing, but the kind of firing that I would want to live around. And so that's what is really valuable to me about this company is that we could continue to make Sonoma Valley, you know, the home, a home of really regenerative wine growing one way or another. Yeah, that's definitely it doesn't matter so much. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it, you're working with the, some of the best fruit in the world. So it's, I think that, you know, and with your talent, I mean, the wine's going to turn out good. And the fun thing is that, I mean, we're all doing this stuff, you know, differently. And I think that at the, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're working with, you know, the best fruit that we possibly can and trying to salvage it from, uh, you know, its own, you know, own nature and own, you know, fires and all of this and doing, you know, what we can and struggling in that fight is romantic and beautiful. And, uh, man, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to these wines like coming together. I can't wait to, to come in and taste the wines also soon and taste your wines, uh, Lisa, and I'm stoked for it. I'd also add that I think one of the really cool parts about Magnolia is that there are a lot of people making very different wines philosophically. Like their approaches are very different. I don't think they, that there's no like philosophical conflict. Um, as Jack was saying, farming is what's most important to everyone. But because everybody's coming from different backgrounds um, and has different approaches, so many conversations stem from just being there and asking what other people are doing and tasting their ferments. And um, that, I mean, I know it has an imp it's had an impact on my winemaking and the choices I've made. And um, I feel like it pushes me to question everything and to keep learning more. Um, and so, yeah, there's very much a sense of, of community there and it's really fun. Um, we're all, I think we're all learning from each other through a certain extent. Yeah, yeah and that's, yeah. you know, to be honest, what I'm the most excited about, uh, you know, some of the 16600 program transitions over there. And, and obviously, 2020 is not the, is we hope the exception, not the rule to how things go, um, is that, you know, there is a place now in Sonoma that is a sort of this communal focus on the farming and the site and, but, you know, and then sort of this more interesting and, and holistic approach to all the different ways that we can get to uh, expressing great sites and great farming. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the nexus and, and that that's going to build and the critical mass that that's going to build. And, and as, you know, this next generation of, of winemaking and, and brands and whatever, um, you know, starts to emerge and mature, um, to keep that focus on, you know, the great vineyards of Sonoma um, and, and to have that home base be Magnolia um, is, is going to be pretty exciting. It, it definitely will be better than it was this year because this year <laughs> this was weird. Yeah. I hope this is a low spot because it was a heck of a lot of fun, even though it was really tough. So, you know, we'll just a couple more clients out there people who sort of mesh culturally and um are care about how the grapes are grown and um you know if someone's out there listening and wants to start a wine brand i mean i'd be so stoked to be able to help someone launch something so that would be you know we're we're we're, we're, we're looking at a couple more clients so that would you know feel free to reach out that's all i'd say 
and just reach out through you. It's probably the best way, right, Jack? Good yeah, uh, that's probably good. Yeah, you can just email me at uh, my personal email, which is J E S P as in Peter O R E R at gmail.com. And yeah, give me a holler. I want to make you one. Or, or go buy two bottles of Primitivo on the website and then email them and say, I just bought two bottles. Let's yeah. talk about making more. Making- <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else that needs to be said about um, Magnolia, you guys, or, or, or uh, Dan Marioni wines or, or Adutet? This is pretty much the official Adutet radio show, so we could probably, we don't need, there's not a whole lot more that we need to say there. If anybody out there who listens to this podcast doesn't know anything about Adutet, I suggest listening back to any of our past episodes, and I'm sure you'll hear about that, or Bart Shannon Blanc, which apparently he makes. I had no idea. I noticed, right? Hey, I'm curious about the box set, Sam, when the box set is uh, oh, yeah. dropping. I don't know if uh, Gattle Face got back to you guys and you guys have got we're, the... We're, we're working on it. We're working on it. All right. And then, Bart, I saw that um, I saw that MJ had received a bottle of your um, unfiltered Shannon Blanc, too, which was kind of cool to see a review of the Shannon Blanc by him. Yeah. And he seemed to like it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm... I, I guess before I decided to bottle those 16 cases, I should have put some in a bottle and left it, you know, for a week to see if anything was going to settle out. But as Sam would say, being on brand, I made up my mind we were going to do some of it unfiltered and we did it unfiltered. And, you know, it's starting to settle out. There's a little bit of uh, great particulate in there, but I I think, you know, you got to embrace the hazy, right? If you're going to do this, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, no. I just got my Emmy um, wine club shipment, so I've been drinking my Columbard, um, you know, unfiltered, and yeah, it, it, and it's delicious, and the texture is amazing, and that's, I think, what the whole key to that was, was the, the texture of the wine was so good. Um, yeah. Yeah. And out the, the unfiltered Shannon to the, our wine club here, and we'll have some left over after that. And then, Is that what um, you dropped on my porch yesterday? was um a bottle of the rossi grenache okay um and i'd really like for you guys to try it because i, I think it's a really interesting um uh bottling of the rossi 18 or 19 18 and, and i'd love to taste it with you guys but i'd love to for your feedback on it too because it's obviously not been released yet but um it, it's it, it's it's different it's a different um version of rossi grenache than what i've tasted although i don't know i've tasted that many rossi grenaches you know right just so. just 16600 over and over again yeah well I, mean, I don't know if you guys saw the top 100 wines in sonoma and sonoma magazine but i know um abbott's passage their white blend from rossi was in there oh, really? yeah some of our friends um you know jeff Cohn with his uh, gsm blend um yeah there was you know definitely some friends of the of the podcast and then they had the I think it was the eight winemakers to watch or something coming up. And it was um, Jolie Laid and uh, Martha Stoneman and um, Jen Reichart from Raft. Um, Bart? No, Bart wasn't in there. Wait. Who's guarding out? Who's not watching them already? I think. Who's right. Well, <laughs> you know, th- you know, honestly, Sam, there's some people that, you know, don't that aren't in this part of the country you know a lot some of those wines don't make it 
out generally, unless you're a Psalm who's into, you know, who's got a rep, who's getting you those, those types of wines. I mean, you know, even for me, getting some of Martha's wine means, you know, Bottle Barn happens to carry some of it. So I get to try some of that. Just knowing um, Jen, getting to try the wrap wine, again, Bottle Barn, um, Jolie Laid, I still haven't tried. So I mean, there's some of us that are not the, the press Democrat is not the authority of wine for, in my opinion. And, um, you know, yeah, it's, whatever. It's, it's, it's the press Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe I'm bitter because I'd sent wines on a number of occasions for them to taste them, and I think someone on the loading dock just took them home and drank them. Get off of my lawn, you kids! <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I got to get out of here. All right. Any other shout-outs? Yeah. We're good. Listen uh, to past episodes. Think- review. Subscribe. Yada yada yada. Yeah. Yeah. Review, subscribe. Review, subscribe. Pick up wines. Free shipping. Because I did hear free shipping. Free shipping from Fresco. Yeah. Four bottles. Yeah. Oh, hey. I'm also running a a fundraiser for La Luz Center. If you buy one of these really cool tank tops I made, uh, you get 10 bucks going to La Luz, which really does a great job in supporting the community in our area so i highly the shirts are really cool in my personal opinion right on all right thank you thank you guys wine services crew and tenants thank you bye guys good to meet you isabel good to see you yeah hope to see all you too brian okay guys Bye. bye cheers thank you